6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 31 through 35. We are in chapter 31, and just a few remarks broadly to position ourselves. We're moving toward Isaiah 35. The first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah have a certain style, a certain um, commitment to certain themes. Chapter 40 through 66 is a different focus and emphasis and style. Do not misunderstand that change of style. It's the same Isaiah. How do we know? Lots of ways. But the simplest is that John tells us so in John chapter 12. Don't let anyone sell you two Isaiahs, or three or four, or any of that foolishness. That can be destroyed on sound scholastic arguments, but you and I can short-circuit all of that by just reading John 12 and discovering that John quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 and says they are both written by the same guy. So that puts to silence that whole foolishness and can save you hours of dull, boring time in dusty library shelves chasing that, what's called this, uh, you know, the Deuteroisaiah foolishness. Very popular in the denominational church. Unfortunately, totally unsound scripturally and spiritually. But that should not mask the insight that you will gain when you read the book of Isaiah through because there is a shifting of gears of sorts from chapter 39 on. And we'll notice that. So when we get to chapter 40 on, we should have seat belts for the pews. It's going to get exciting. The four chapters between chapter 35 and 40, you'll discover, are a historical insert in a sense. We shift from this poetic, high literary style that characterizes Isaiah to a narrative that's virtually identical to 1 Kings 18 through 21, I believe it is, and uh, 2 Chronicles 32, 33. Point is, in fact, many scholars attribute those passages in 2 Kings to Isaiah, and you'll find they're very, very similar. But the point is, those four chapters that we'll come to uh, probably next time will be our historical narratives, very colorful and interesting as to what happens, but they're really a different kind of writing, if you will. So we have what you might call the first major section of Isaiah, which will end at chapter 35. Then 36, 7, 8, 9 are the four historical chapters, and then we go from 40 on, and that's a ball. So hang in there for another evening, and uh, we'll keep moving. Now, we're at chapter 31, and again, uh, let's just re-highlight the historical context. I haven't overemphasized that because some of the fun of Isaiah is when he departs from the local historical context and gives us these sweeping glimpses or overviews or horizons, if you like, of the apocalypse, of the day of the Lord, of the end time, or the millennium, whatever. He seems to deal with the pragmatic issues facing he and Hezekiah and the Assyrians and all that, but then he sort of comes up for air and gives us an interlude of some other sweeps. But because of that, I haven't overly emphasized, I don't think, the historical context, but just to keep the thing somewhat in perspective. 
Isaiah is a prophet, but he also is in the office of a prophet. That is, he had access to the court. And uh, Hezekiah is the king. And their fear and threat and anxiety and what have you is that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has swept the country with nothing but victories. The Assyrian Empire, bear in mind, had been dominant for hundreds of years. So they're a powerful, fearsome adversary. And Judah, headquartered in Jerusalem, Hezekiah the king, is fearful of the Assyrians and has turned to a possible ally, Egypt, for help. And in the scripture, you'll find it's unanimous that that's a bad idea. First of all, we'll see that Isaiah has been hammering on this. God, through Isaiah, says, you're looking to the wrong help. You don't look to Egypt, you look to me for help. The God of Israel, you should be, that is. But you're going to also find that Assyria also makes the same jibe. He says, Egypt's not going to be of any help. And indeed, we'll see what God does here as this whole thing unfolds. But in any case... Isaiah, in chapter 31, is picking up this topic of the futility of looking to Egypt as an assist in this particular commitment. Now, on the one hand, we obviously are focusing on the primary meaning of the passage, which, of course, is Judah's predicament and looking to Egypt for help. But as we read this, let's also be sophisticated and sensitive and have an overview of the Scripture as a whole. And as we do that, we also know from other portions of Scripture that very frequently, not always, but very frequently, the Scripture uses Pharaoh and Egypt as idioms spiritually. We are called, as Israel was, out of Egypt. Egypt is a type or a model or an idiom for the world, spiritually speaking. And Pharaoh is thus the ruler of that world. And that's, of course, who's the ruler of this age? Satan. That's what I've heard. Okay. So as we read this, Be sensitive to the possibility that the Holy Spirit be working with you individually if you, in fact, might think in the same terms. Do we, even though we should be looking to God as our resource, do we cop out and look to Egypt for help? You see, there's a sense, at least, on some occasions where that's highly inappropriate. And so I suggest that as an anticipatory application of what we're about to jump into. Chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong and in Porsches and Mercedes and... No, I'm sorry. Okay. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Verse 1, boy, you know, it's the old expression, the shoe pinches, you know, see to it. Do we do that? All of us are guilty. I know I have been on too many occasions, looking to Egypt for help. Easy trap to fall into as you're faced with the anxieties. But you think you've got anxieties. Put yourself in the shoes of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, and all around the landscape, all the cities he knew through history, have fallen to Sennacherib. By the way, the word Sennacherib has an interesting meaning. Sin nekerib, which means, by the way, sin multiplies its brothers. Isn't that cute? Now, you and I chuckle because that's kind of a weird handle to have, isn't it? But you need to understand, I shouldn't leave you with that because it's misleading. Sin, in their language, was their name for the moon god. We use the word sin because of its Old English derivative. It's an Old English word from archery, means missing the mark. And thus it becomes an idiom for what we all know as sin in English. You follow me? Now, 
The Sennacherib, it happens to be a pun in a sense because the word sin in the Assyrian language happened to be the name for the moon god. But it's kind of a coincidence, right? Now, if you're in the traffic of our kind of thing, you say that I've often kidded around so that, you know, the coincidence is not a kosher word, right? In fact, we were talking about that earlier today, and I coined another observation. At least I don't know if I coined it originally, but it popped in my mind. The Lord gave it to me, is that coincidence is the world's way of denying God's supervision. Isn't that cute? Yeah. So, I, you know, try that on and see if it fits. It's funny. I still have echoing in my mind something Romaine gave me some months ago. Romaine came up to me in with a one-liner that's been echoing in my ears. Don't let the tyranny of self-reliance rob you of the miraculous. That's my thought for the day. I just leave that with you. You have nothing to do with verse 1. Let's go down to verse 2. Yes, it really does, by the way. You see, when we look to Egypt, when we look to anything but God, the most dangerous thing to look towards ourselves, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, isn't that the, the, the culture of our age? Entrepreneurship. You know, as a guy that's made his living as an entrepreneur, that's the whole idea, you know, the worth of the individual and all that. And there's a place for that, in a sense, but there's very serious limits. Don't let the tyranny of self-sufficiency rob you of the miraculous. Verse 2, yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will rise again uh, against the house of the evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. By the way, that's something else that we need to, from time to time, keep in focus. As Christians, as devotees of the New Testament, we focus on grace and mercy. And that's appropriate. Don't misunderstand me. But we run a gigantic risk of ignoring Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. They're not ten suggestions. They're ten commandments. God has given us the law to show us what his righteousness requires. And we need from time to time to be conscious of our inability to fulfill that righteousness. We see call the gospel the good news. That's terrific. But it's good news. It's a solution only if you understand what the problem is. And the problem is our lack of his righteousness that he's provided through grace and mercy. We need to remember that there is going to be a day of reckoning. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be a reconciliation of iniquity. And... You see, he is going to arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. And let's recognize that our Jesus Christ is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. We talk about that deeply when we study Ruth or study Revelation 5 and a lot of other passages. Let's also remember what the other role was for the kinsman redeemer, and that is the avenger of blood. Isaiah will be building up to that in some rather dramatic terms by the time we get near the end of the book. Anyway, verse 3, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is helped shall fall down, and they shall fail together. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me. Isaiah speaking, as the lion or the young lion roaring on his prey when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him will not be afraid of their voice nor abase himself for the noise of them, so shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. As birds flying, 
or hovering. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also. He will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. It's interesting what the psalmist says, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. I always love that psalm. I always visualize it being framed and hanging over the radar installations up in the Kalan Heights or wherever. Anyway, verse 6. Turn unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Now verse 8. We obviously will try to keep moving because we have a lot of ground to cover, but there's certain places we want to pause, and verse 8 is one of those. Interesting prophecy by Isaiah. Then shall the Assyrian fall by the sword, not of man, and the sword, not of men, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be made vassals. That's quite a mouthful. You see, the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, but not man's sword. Really? That's a little weird. And the sword not of men shall devour him, and then those that remain, apparently. He shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be made vassals or slaves. Let's get one more verse, and then we'll finish the chapter, and we'll double back on this verse. And he shall pass over to a stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. The Lord has a furnace in Jerusalem. Interesting. Verse 8. To understand verse 8, we need to sneak over to 2 Kings 19. 2 Kings 19. In 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah, fearful of the Assyrians, in verses 14 through 19, prays in the temple. Then verse 20 through 34 is the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's prayer through Isaiah. You can get through this on your own, but the main point will be verse 34. The climax of the Lord's response to Hezekiah's prayer is verse 34. God says through Isaiah, I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. On the one hand, we have the commitment to Hezekiah of the God of the universe that he is going to defend the city of Jerusalem. And it's to Hezekiah's credit that he rested in that commitment. That sounds glib, by the way. We're going to cover this again because in chapters 35 through 39, we have this material in a historical form, and we'll get into the entourage that Sennacherib the king sends to them. But they call their attention, not just to the envoy, but to all the soldiers up on the wall, that uh, you guys don't stand a chance. And I'll give you 2,000 horses if I thought you could man them properly. I mean, they really taunt them. But the Assyrians point out that if they don't surrender, they're going to be eating their own excrement and drinking their own water, if you don't understand what I'm saying. You and I have no ability to appreciate what a siege meant, unless you've done a lot of deep reading of the ancient past. We use those words glibly. But when an enemy force surrounded a walled city, whether you're talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians later or the Persians or the Greeks, or perhaps worst of all, the Romans... When they decided to take a city, they would build a wall of their own out of the local forests around the city and dig in and be prepared to camp around the city for as long as it takes, typically as much as 25 years. 
And when you saw the Roman army or whatever from the tower, from the wall, start camping around, you knew they could seal off the city. And no matter how wealthy you were, food would eventually run out. Water would eventually be stopped, unless you were lucky and had wells. And most of these things were fed by rivers that could be stopped by the army, etc. So you were prepared then to face the reality of having the people in your city resort to cannibalism to stay alive or whatever. The horrors of siege is something that you normally would not encounter unless you do some reading of Josephus and some of the historians that recount some of these things. So heavy-duty stuff. Now, if you're the King Hezekiah and you've got an adversary there that's world-famous for being invincible, never having lost, challenging you, you'd be panicked. And you try to turn to somebody, Egypt or whatever might be handy, to make some kind of protective alliance. You're going to understand the pressures. And for him to take it to the Lord and to heed Isaiah's commitment. It's kind of interesting. Hezekiah deserves our respect. His father, Ahaz, was bad news. And we're going to talk about Hezekiah's subsequent history and what his offspring, Manasseh, was also bad news. In fact, the worst news probably Jude ever had. But Hezekiah himself deserves some interest here. Verse 35 tells you what God did. It came to pass that that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. hundred and eighty-five thousand troops slaughtered one night. And by the way, it doesn't say they were all destroyed. We have no idea how many were there. The implications is that was only part of them. Because it says, and when they rose early in the morning, not the ones that were slaughtered, obviously, the ones that are left, <laughs> behold, they were all dead bodies. It reminds me of some of the uh, things I understand, the special forces of certain foreign countries, the Turks and others, in some of the combats where we've uh, shared uh, combat duties with them in Korea and elsewhere, had a unique trick they used to like to do. When a forward patrol of the special forces would encounter an enemy camp, they had a knack of slitting the throat of every other soldier. And in the morning, can you imagine waking up and being one that left? Sounds weird and strange. Can you imagine the impact? That was part of the, the shtick that they prided themselves in, this particular kinds of troops. And there's several of them that have this kind of reputation. I always think of that when I read verse 35, because the angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000. doesn't say he slaughtered them all. There were some left to carry the message back. You don't mess around with angels. 185,000, that's a lot in anybody's book. Today, in modern warfare, that's a lot. Can you imagine what it was back then? The Assyrian army. They were the world empire at the time, laying siege here. And, of course, what happened? Verse 36. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh, his capital. Can't blame him. That's no place for Sennacherib. Of course, neither was Nineveh, because Isaiah had prophesied, and verse 37 fulfills it, it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, those are two of his three sons, two of his sons, smote him with the sword. Boy, that's got to be a humiliating way to be assassinated, by your own children. Think about it. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, another one of his sons, reigned in his stead. So that's the story of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Back to Isaiah. Now we're in chapter 32. Oh, one other thing. As I think of Hezekiah standing on the wall, looking out, and seeing the Assyrian army one evening, 
Next morning he gets up and they're gone because 185,000 bodies are scattered around and the rest of them have split, understandably. I'm reminded of another kind of thing you and I need to recognize. See, did Hezekiah have any idea how God was going to do this? No. Was there some visible sign of support the day before? No. God said he was going to do it, took care of it, right? You might turn with me to 2 Kings 6, because there's another event involving a different adversary, but don't confuse Syria with the Assyrians. But in chapter 6, we have Elisha. And Elisha finds himself surrounded by the Syrian army. The way I visualize Elisha is that he looks at all this with great poise. In fact, you might even say, you know, not bored, but that may be overplaying it, but you follow what I'm saying. His servant was in panic because he looked out and saw the Syrian army. And he obviously is convinced that his master doesn't appreciate the gravity of the situation. There's the Syrian army out there. In verse 15 of 2 Kings 6, it says, When the servant of the man of God, Elisha, was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and with chariots. And a servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? And the way I posture the scene is a servant's becoming unglued. If I was casting this, I'd put Don Knotts in it or somebody. You know. <laughs> Elisha has got other things to do. Probably taking a nap, who knows. Elisha, verse 16, said, and Fear not, for they who are with us are more than who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, show it to him. No, he says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. You see? Elisha didn't sweat it. He knew God's going to take care of it. His servant's all in panic. Hey, Lord, show him. Get the kid off my back, you know. How many of you use a word processing package on your personal computers? Can I see you saw hands? Okay. Okay, a lot of Okay. So I'm going to use an analogy that may be a little obscure to some of you who don't use a PC or, or, or Mac or whatever. But it's interesting, you know, when, you, when you're typing a document in a word processing package, you see what you're typing. Dear Mr. Smith, blah, 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 you write through. What you don't know, and because you don't want to know, is that behind the scenes, the software is taking care of all kinds of things for you. When you get to the end of a line, it gives you what's called a soft carriage return. That is, a carriage return that will change its position where your margins end up. You change the margins, it'll adjust all that. You don't hit the carriage return after you, you do that only at the end of a sentence, right? There's soft carriage return, there's hard carriage return. Also, you may be printing part of it in italics, some of it underlined, some of it bold. All that stuff is hidden codes behind the text. And what are your margins? Top margin, bottom. You know, there's just, there are thousands of problems the software is solving for you that you don't even want to get involved with unless... You want to do something a little different. There are occasions then when you need to push a key typically called revealed codes, and it shows you in some other color or some other way all these little codes that are embedded in your text that you don't see printed in your document, nor do you see it on the screen unless you ask for it, so that you can make changes. You can make something a little different because you're going to set it up for publishing or whatever, right? But it's interesting, every time when you're doing that, when you push revealed codes, you might realize that that's what we need in our lives. You see, we need a key we can push that will show us 
what's going on behind the scenes. You see, just like in your word processor, you've got the text and you've got all the stuff going on invisibly behind you to make it all work, right? You and I have no visibility of what God is doing around you. There are threats and attacks on you you don't even know about. Why? Because God's dealing with it, right? In fact, the, the experts tell me that all the physical world is but a manifestation of a spiritual warfare. You get glimpses of this here in Second Kings 6. We get a glimpse of it in Daniel chapter 10. We get glimpses of it all through the scripture, little hints where we begin to realize the validity of this outlook. You and I are the same thing. In our lives, there's a spiritual warfare going on. There is a prince of the power of Persia, like in Daniel 10 and Greek. There's also a prince of the power of the United States and the Russian Republic and Kazakhstan. And the, in other words, all these entities that we know as forces are represented in this other domain spiritually. Bible tells weird ideas, but that's what the Bible lays out. And from time to time, it would be neat if we somehow could push a key called Reveal Codes and realize that the forces that are around you are greater than the forces that are against you. Interesting. I suspect there's times that we're grateful that we don't see what's going on. Just put it into trust. Okay, chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in justice. Now, if you understand the world, you realize that's yet future. <laughs> that's not historical. It's certainly not present. It's yet future. And what is he talking about? Of course, the kingdom age. As Isaiah has a tendency to do, he inserts here a sense of optimistic relief, in a sense. He's hitting all this heavy stuff, but he gives us as a uplift, a reminder that, hey, the, the kingdom is coming. The millennium is coming. And it's going to be a righteous king. There is none righteous but Jesus Christ. When it speaks of the righteous king, we're talking about our Lord and Savior, the King of kings, Lord of lords, before whom every knee shall bow. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.